Welcome to the Great Lakes Horror Company podcast, presented by the Library of the Damned. I am your host, Sephora Jerome. Today's theme is sex and slaughter, or as others may call it, erotic horror. Our guests tonight, Nancy Kilpatrick and Megan Hart, have been working in the erotic field, the horror field, and the erotic horror field, as well as other genres, for many years. And we all have a ton of books under our belts. Our roundtable, or rather, our triangle tonight, is focused on how you too can be an erotic horror writer. Welcome, Nancy Kilpatrick and Megan Hart. I chose the three of us because I think we represent three generations of erotic horror writers. The world that Nancy first encountered might be different than the world that Megan encountered, as she is the youngest of all of us. <laughs> Before we begin, I'd like you to introduce yourselves with who you are and some of your erotic horror work. Megan, would you like to start? Sure. Um, I'm Megan Hart, and I started my writing love with writing short horror, dark fantasy, science fiction. When I started to look into novel-length work, I aimed more toward romance, mostly because I really enjoyed reading romances, and I always liked the romances that kept the door open rather than closed. So I naturally gravitated toward more erotic romance. Fortunately for me, at the time when erotic, more sexually explicit romance was becoming popular, is when I started publishing. But I always loved writing horror as well. So even though my best-known works of erotica, erotic romance, are not necessarily horror, I always kept in the back of my mind that I loved writing horror and wanted to continue doing it, and I dabbled in it. Um, and I, I always felt there was a really strong connection between the two genres um, that I really loved and wanted to explore and just love writing about. So the projects mostly that I did for fun versus contracted work or whatever kind of always led to the dark places. So that's where I am. Oh, that's fantastic. Would you like to tell us a couple of titles people might? Of erotic horror specifically? Oh uh, yeah, just to okay. start us off. Um, uh, my The vast body of my published work is either erotic romance or erotica or mainstream romance. I haven't actually there isn't a lot available uh, in erotic horror. One of the reasons being that it's kind of hard to place. Um, it's, I love it. I think people, all people should love it, but it's kind of hard to find a home for. But I did write a story called Moonlight Madness, and um, that's available. It's, a, it's just a very short story, but it is definitely erotic horror versus just horror or erotica. And um, so that's one title that people could look for if they wanted to. Great. Fantastic. So my answer to the question of uh, who I am and some of my erotic horror work is uh, um, one of my first pro sales was actually to Nancy Kilpatrick when she was Amarantha Knight. Um, she was editing a couple of uh, anthologies for Masquerade Books. And um, she, she lived in Toronto at the time, as did I, and she encouraged me to submit a story to her, um, which was called Real, which is, of course, the title of a Who song, because all my work is titled after Who songs, even though it's nothing to do with the Who. Um, so the, that story is called Real, and it was a lesbian ghost story, and it was my first professionally published horror and erotic horror 
Hoover uh, story. And that was very exciting for me. And that was, I think, around 1999 or so. And uh, from there, I proceeded to go on to write horror and erotica and erotic horror and all the combinations thereof. And uh, right now, um, I'm writing an erotic horror series. Um, I started it a few years ago, and it used to be called... um, the sextrology series, but now it's called Witch Upon a Star uh, because there's some psychic out there who's decided she owns the name sextrology and I'm not allowed to use it anymore, even though my books were out long before she even existed. But that's another story for another time. <laughs> and uh, so now my series is called Witch Upon a Star. And the first four books have been republished by Riverdale Avenue Books last year. And uh, the the next eight books are going to be published over the next year, uh, with Taurus being the next book coming out in Taurus in May. Um, so that's a little bit of my erotic horror background. Nancy? Well, I've written quite a bit of horror, and I've written quite a bit of erotica, and I've blended the two on a lot of occasions. So, um, yeah, <laughs> that's kind of me. That's what I do. I don't actually consider myself any particular type of writer. I just write, and there seems to be an awful lot of erotica in what I write for some reason. <laughs> it's awesome. Really? all right um so okay i'll start with nancy since we have you back now nancy um how did you begin the erotic horror part of your career um i think one of the first things i did was from a really tiny publisher that i met back in the genie days that's how old i am and uh, he put out these little publications. His name was Stan Tao. And uh, I, he did a couple of odd, oddball kind of publications that had to do with sex and horror. And so I wrote a few things for him. And then through him, I ended up meeting, ultimately, uh, the publisher of Masquerade Books in New York City, which was a, um, it's kind of a, a, I guess you'd say imprint, if there is such a thing, uh, of, of a, it was an imprint of a, uh, a very large erotic center for magazines and all that sort of thing. I mean, it was a really big deal publishing house and they decided to do some books. So I was very into vampires all along and I proposed the, um, the first of my darker passions books, which are basically pastiches of the horror classics and uh, they're meant to be funny and they're meant to be really hot and they're very wild and extreme and they're not uh, tame and they're not Harlequin romances at all. They're just over the top madness. So I proposed that to him, and uh, he was driving down to Virginia or someplace from New York with his then-girlfriend, who he ended up marrying, and uh, she read it to him aloud, <laughs> this is the first part of the book that I had written. And uh, so he came back from Virginia and said, yes, he wanted to buy that. So uh, the name was changed, and essentially I ended up doing the Darker Passion series, which included all of the, pretty much all of the horror classics, Dracula, Frankenstein, Jekyll Hyde, and so on. So that's really how I kind of slotted into the whole, strongly slotted into the whole um, horror connection to erotica. Uh, Before that, I had done those little stories for that person I mentioned, and uh, they weren't particularly horror. They were kind of horrific if you looked at them in a certain way, as many things can be looked at. Um, But out of that, um, that came a a pen name for me, Amarantha Knight, mainly because I already had a novel with pocketbooks, and they insisted that I couldn't write anything else for anyone else in the way of novels with my name. So I toyed with the idea of doing um, you know, N. Kilpatrick or Nancy Kay or something, you know, but then I 
thought, oh, this series is so strange and so really beyond the beyond that I should have a name to go with it. So I came up with Amarantha Knight for a lot of reasons, which I won't go into because it's show. <laughs> um, and so from there, I did uh, five anthologies of erotic horror stories back then as well, same publisher. So I edited as well. And, uh, and then I started doing other erotica for other publishers. Um, and I did some short stories, a whole bunch of short stories for different kinds of publishers. And, uh, there was also the, um, uh, the I did some for, um, uh, uh, there was this, well, Sephra knows this, she was in here too, uh, this publisher that uh, through an agent, a former agent of mine, this publisher that does the Vivid Girls uh, on the internet, they were doing novels that had to do with the, the lives of the Vivid Girls. So we ended up doing novels that had to do with them and from their perspective and something to do with horror and erotica. And so I, I took another name for that and uh, also did a book for Orion in the UK that did a erotic horror series. Um, their imprint was called Neon. So I had a second name, which was Desiree Knight, who was the younger sister of Amphrantha Knight. And, uh, and so it just kind of evolved. It's not that I started out to do this, and I didn't do it intentionally. And I wish I'd heard what Megan had to say uh, about this, but gosh, I wasn't here at that point. I was somewhere trying to get my computer to work. But um, yeah, that was me. That's how I kind of fell into it, I suppose you'd say. Or it was already in my, in my radar, but not quite in the way that I, I ended up doing it. Yeah, um, I'd spoken a, a tiny bit about uh, how you did the Sex Macabre uh, anthology, because that's how I had my first professional erotic horror sale, was to you as Amarantha Knight, uh, with my little lesbian ghost story. And then, yeah, we, we had some parallel publishing, um, because, like you mentioned, the vivid video books... <laughs> I did two of those, um, and they were supposed to give me a pen name, but they used my real name. <laughs> Actually, they didn't use any of our names, did they? They used the porn star. Uh, only in the, uh, I think the copyright was Yeah, the it. copyright page had our real name. on page, you know, the inner pages. <laughs> you couldn't find it. But, <laughs> yeah, it was surprising our names weren't on the cover, but... Those books were done, at least the one I did. I was supposed to do two, and I actually backed out of one. It just was enough for me. But um, they were from the perspective of the girl that was the, the vivid girl. So uh, it was an I story. I did this, I did that. Uh, I guess they wanted to keep that illusion going by having it, you know, having no one else's name on the cover. I don't know. I'm just guessing. I, I didn't even get instructions, uh, even though I spoke to the president of Vid Vivid Video and her parrot was screaming in the background. And uh, she didn't even know what these books were supposed to be. So <laughs> my, one of my books, which was the Savannah Sampson one, I made both of my books horror. Um, were they even supposed to be horror? I don't know. But she asked a bunch of horror writers to do them. So that's what she got. Um, <laughs> I don't remember there being any uh, anything like a guideline or anything like that. Yeah. Mine was Mine was horror, too. It was called, well, her, the character I did was Mercedes with a, a Z at the end. Mercedes, Book of the Dead, or Day of the Dead. She was down in, she was from Mexico in my in real life, I guess, in Corpus Christi area. And so I had her going a little holiday into Mexico because she is, um, you know, Latino. So she went down to Mexico and ran into a few, you know, sexy ghosts and so on. Yeah, I had a Savannah I Samson. Like I, I feel like I'm just just a couple of years behind you guys and I'm like that would have been so much fun but yeah 
was a little bit weird. That it, it, it sounds more fun than it was because it was so confusing because we had no instructions. So I mean, I had two porn stars. So the one I had her go through a fetish club and fuck everyone all the way in a, every room. By the time, uh, you know, no, the main character did. By the time he got to Savannah, I don't know how he still had energy left, but he fucked her too. And then on the uh, other book I did, Sunrise Adams, that was another lesbian ghost story. Uh, but it was like Fantasy Island, So, but it was called The Lust Ranch. So people would go to the ranch and act out their fantasies. And meanwhile, there's a ghost, a lesbian ghost uh, doing <laughs> things. <laughs> and then I also did a book with Orion, with Nancy, because she told me about it. So I got in on that one, too. And mine was called Hungarian Rhapsody. And again, I made that erotic horror. It was a vampire story, even though I don't think it mattered if they were horror in that either, did it? I don't even yeah, remember I any of <laughs> supposed to be horror i think yeah oh, okay those ones were supposed yeah. to be horror, but <laughs> mine was <laughs> make the other ones horror whether they wanted to or not but megan i'm curious about your uh early career and how you got into writing romance and erotica and how do you decide how much sex to put in because it's a different kind of um business than in straight horror where in horror everybody hates sex and if you have sex you're supposed to die but in your world uh where you play mostly um sex is a huge part of it but you don't always get to talk about it do you or do you uh, how does it work well uh okay so like listening to your stories i think again, like, <laughs> i was just a few like i was just a couple years behind that sort of time when there were opportunities to do these erotic things. And then what happened was when I started publishing, like I had said earlier, I always loved, I, I decided I wanted to write romance. Uh, romance is, um, it was at the time, I, I think it still is the number one selling genre. Romance novels are immensely popular. Yep. yep. And so when I decided I wanted to focus my novel length work on writing romance from a professional perspective of what, what can I sell? Um, I always wanted to leave the door open and write really sexy stories, but I I kind of came I came into the market in the early I want to say early two thousands when erotic romance really became um, a thing separate from erotica and romance or right. super sexy romance. So I kind of got in on got in on the ground floor of this time when there were really sexy books that were erotica and I wrote some of that. Um, I, I wrote some stories for like hustler and, you know, letters magazine and those sorts of things, which were definitely erotica veering toward porn really. Uh -huh. And then there was romance and the doors were opening on romance where you could be more graphic and more specific and the storylines were becoming more graphic. And there was this rise in the romance world where erotica or really more sexually charged stories were becoming more popular. And I'd always had an interest in that. I always really liked it. So that's what I kind of started writing and working on. And so I, my horror, even though I had always loved horror and I started off writing horror, I, there weren't as many opportunities. And like I said, I was like, man, that sounds like so much fun, you know, like these horror, you know, horror novels. And I had read, um, I mean, even on my keeper shelf to this day, right now, I'm turning around, I'm looking on my keeper shelf, and I shudder at your touch, which was, uh, and shudder again, which were two collections of specifically stories of sex and horror. I loved reading that, and I wanted it. But in the romance world, you can't you can't really go with the in the horror 
direction. So I veered more into the romance erotic um, venue, and I and I was writing horror on the side and focusing on writing horror for myself and loving horror. And it wasn't really there really wasn't that much of a cross other than I've just come to accept anything I write, just about anything I write has a bit of an erotic tinge to it. That's just the voice I have. Those are the out. So I have worked mostly in um, not necessarily horror, although when I, I look back on a lot of my stories and even if they're romances, there's always, there's a scary story. Someone's had a paranormal experience. There's a haunting. Something weird has happened to my people and they're all messed up. <laughs> so that's where I'm coming in from. <laughs> yeah, because I, I, I figured it, it'd be a bit different. But I, I, I will add, though, that even though it sounds like a lot of fun, those crazy books Nancy and I did, um, the minute they came out, the lines died and the publishers closed. So that was the end of that. Because so, <laughs> I don't think there was a book off for that. <laughs> That happens a lot, and so you know the th the thing is, um, like I've also written for lines, which, like, you write the story and then, oops, okay, well that's it because it's closed now, and you're like, okay, well that was fun. Yeah, because even like with Sam Hain, you and I were both Megan and I were both in Sam Hain, and uh, I know I was supposed to write some books for a new erotic horror line they were trying to put up, but I was. It's very slow because I haven't been well the last few years, so I'm writing really slow. And um, so I didn't get my shit together in time. I wrote A Penny Saved, which was total erotic porn horror. You know, she literally goes to hell, you know, <laughs> and all the whatever. But then there's supposed to be a whole series of those coming through, like A Stitch in Time and so on. I bet, but then Sam Hain died, so I never got to see where those stories might have gone. <laughs> you know? But <clears throat> there's always the next publisher. Yeah. Well, um, you know, it's funny, the whole thing of crossing over with sex. I mean, you know, it, it, there's a lot of times where there's sex in a book, but it's not necessarily considered erotic, although it is, if you know what I mean. Like in mainstream books I'm talking about, or even in any of the genres, there's, there's often sex of some sort. Uh, sometimes it's kind of, you know, vague or, or what is called vanilla sex, but sometimes it's just pretty wild and extreme. Uh, but it's fair because sex is part of life, right? Exactly. And that kind of leads me into the next question I kind of wanted to ask you guys. Um, and we've kind of touched on it, but not really. We can explore it more like Nancy's just suggesting. The, um, how do you decide if you want your story to be erotic, erotic horror? How do you decide how much sex to put into it? Why not just horror or mystery or whatever or just sex? Um, you know, and again, like Megan has to, uh, in the romance field, there's so many different imprints and genres. And <laughs> like this, this imprint can have this much sex, this does not. But how do you decide? And um, you may have to think back to early in your careers uh, to, for your decisions because if you're like me now, um, we write what we are asked to write and we don't have a lot of leeway just to sit down. I'm just going to write for fun because I think we're all at the points in our careers where people ask us to write for certain lines or certain stories and so we kind of know what what we can do or not do because we've been in the game so long. But for a new writer, how would you suggest to them to decide how much sex to put into a story and how does it make it erotic or how does it uh, I personally think there's not much difference between erotica and porn, but that's just me. But how 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 do you decide like what's 
you know, how, how to do that? You know, I think if, if you're writing to a specific market, you know, especially if you're a new writer, you're going to be looking at the market guides and you see, oh, there's a, a magazine or there's an anthology and they're open and I could write something for them. That market kind of tells you what they want. They tell you what they're looking for. And so your story comes to that particular theme. And because you're writing to a particular theme, you're focused on that, but you also have a plot to your story. So your plot might call for something erotic in it, or it might not. It depends on the writer. But I don't, I don't know about the idea of, of determining, I, this is alien to me, I'll tell you, just right from the get-go, determining how much erotic is put into a story or not. I, it's really, it's not a way I think. So I just write based on um, what something feels what I feel about it, you know, I'm, I feel a story and I write it and if it comes out to be erotic, which it probably will have erotica in it because that's the way I tend to write, it just is. I don't see it as, oh, should I put more, should I put less, or what, are, what about this scene, should I make that, you know, I don't do it that way. So, But I think, you know, if you're a new writer, you're going to be writing for a market, basically, and the market... Often the the markets will say they want this, they don't want that, and you know you'll get a, a feel for it that way. Okay. And Megan, do you have a? Do you want me to repeat the question? Do you know what? <laughs> yes. um, so, yeah, I absolutely agree. If you're a new writer starting out, you're going to be answering calls for story submissions, or you're answer. You know, you're going to be looking at um, publishers and what they're accepting and what their guidelines are. And you know, if you want to sell you will write to those guidelines. That's that's the thing is, uh, for me, it, this is not a hobby, this is my job, so I want to do the best I can to write to whatever the guidelines are and the submissions are, or the submission guidelines are, so that I'm gonna write what they want to buy. And I think that a lot of people get confused between writing sex versus what's erotic. You can have a story that's full of sex that's not erotic at all. You can have sex in a story. That doesn't make it erotic or erotica. It depends on how it's written. So when I look at stories that I'm writing, first of all, if I'm writing to a contract, then generally they've already asked me, like you said, they've already asked me for a specific kind of story. So I'm going to put in whatever amount of sex, graphic description, whatever is necessary for that kind of story. But if I'm writing a story that I just want to for fun or because I love it or because it, it, ha it has come to me and I'm writing it without being asked to write it and I'm writing it hoping to sell it, I never start off with, well, this story is going to have three sex scenes, two of them kinky and one <laughs> slightly less so. I don't ever, <laughs> I don't ever look at it like that. For me, the erotic content has to be really organic to the story. It has to, okay, some people think, especially when the erotica boom happened and erotic stories were flying off the shelves and everything was add, add sex, add sex, write erotic, write erotic. Just throwing some sex in there doesn't make it erotic. It can have a lot of sex in it, but that doesn't mean that it's sexy. So... I always look at it as if I could take the sex out of this story, whether it's horror or romance or science fiction or fantasy or whatever I'm writing, if I could take this sex scene out, 
then I don't need to write it at all. Just like if I could take this action scene or this, you know, whatever kind of scene, if I can take it out, then it doesn't need to be there in the first place. So that's how I look at it. If I'm writing a specifically erotic story, all the plot lines, all the character motivations, all the threads of the story have an erotic component to them. If I'm writing a story that's, let's say, a, a, a horror story, there might still be some erotic scenes, but they're also really necessary and they have to be there for whatever reason, you know, whatever the characters are doing, whatever. But one erotic scene doesn't make the whole story, doesn't make it erotica. I tend, I tend to writing more explicit or graphic scenes because that's what I like to read. So I like what I, I write what I like to read. That's what I do. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> I think Nancy does too. <laughs> um, just thinking about how, um, you know, I have this new series that I'm doing and it's a vampire series and there's a lot of sex in it. Uh, it's, the book is called Revenge of the Vampire King. Now, the word revenge tells you a lot right there. And this is not going to be the pretty sex. It's not going to be romantic. It's going to be harsh and it's going to be violent because that's the way it is. They're vampires, you know. You can't expect them to be. Well, I guess you can if you've seen Twilight. But that's not what I do. So they're not sparkling and they're not the good boyfriend. They're vampires you know they're another species and the word revenge says a lot and I think people going into the book have to you know cope with that <laughs> as it were because it's uh it's part of this it's the story the story hinges on revenge the story hinges on getting back at and if it's not there then it's it has to be in a lot of ways and if it's not in various ways including sex it's not going to happen as a story for me because that's what I'm trying to write so I don't know. I think, you know, a, a story has calls for it or not. That's the way I see it. That's the way I've always seen it. I had an earlier series, the uh, Power of the Blood series, that people always thought was very erotic. Again, you know, some of, the, some of the sex was violent and some of it was not. And there was a lot of dominance and submission in one of the books at least. So, I mean, this is, you know, whatever people read into it. So, I don't know. I'm not the reader. I'm the writer of this, <laughs> the way I see it. And, you know, I write what I want to write. And if people enjoy it and they want to read it, I'm really happy about that. But I know what I do is not for everybody. And I think anything that's erotic is going to run into a um, an audience somewhere out there that's not going to appreciate it because of all kinds of things that we could discuss, you know, ad nauseum. But, uh, it's, you know, those people should should just stay away from those books then and, you know, turn off the TV or, or don't go to that movie or whatever it is that's bothering them. Um, there seems to be a, a whole theme these days to kind of, well, if I don't like it, you should stop doing it. Well, I, for one, am not going to stop doing what I do. And I don't think any of you two are either. So, um, you know, this is just, a, it's, it's part of life. Like, you know, get a grip. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, and, and uh, just piggybacking on that. So in the, in the romance world, in romance landia, like more sexually explicit, explicit books did become more popular and reached a real a real peak or a, a climax, if you, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, in the last few years, but there are still people who don't like reading explicit books. They don't like explicit sex scenes and they don't like explicit language. And my response always is, well, isn't it wonderful that there is a whole vast world of books out there and we can all find something that we like, you know, read what you love, read yeah. what you love, read what, and, and write what you love. 
So I think you both have kind of already answered this, but what's your favorite part about writing erotic horror or erotica in general? Whoever wants to go first. <laughs> you know, one time I was on this uh, panel at a convention, God, this was years ago, and it was on erotic horror writing. And it was, and we somehow we got into talking about writing sex scenes. And somebody in the audience asked, and there was a row of us, and we were all women on this panel. I think there were about seven or eight women. And they, they somehow they started young, <laughs> worked their way up to me. I'm always the oldest, right? Uh, so anyway, uh, and Nancy Holder was sitting next to me, and then it went, you know, down. So these women all started talking. And immediately, you know, the, the question was, well, do you, when you write these sex scenes, do you basically do you get hot? That's not exactly the wording, but that's what they want us to know. That's what this guy wants us to know. Do you get hot when you're writing these sex scenes? And so all these women, one after the other, were saying, absolutely not, like it was some kind of crime or sin. I never would get, no, this is writing. This is a part for me. They do this whole thing. And then got to Nancy Holder, and she sort of, you know, waffled a little bit. And she, well, you know, I sometimes, yeah, well, sometimes it's, it's fun, and it feels kind of sexy. I said, of course I get hot. You know, what's the point of it? I'm not getting, like, off on it. Why am I doing it? You know, it's not a head thing. Sex is not a head thing. I mean, it can be. You can play head games, of course, but the head games lead to something that's very physical. And when you're writing this stuff, of course, you should, I think, you should have this, you should be tingling yourself with it. It should be exciting because then you can write that excitement into the scenes. I, I agree that if, okay, so if I'm writing something and I'm not at least able to understand why someone would get off on it, no reader's going to get off on it either. And um, writing writing romance and specifically erotic romance, I get emails sometimes and people are like, so I have to tell you that I read this book and then this happened and this happened. And it's a little bit too much information, to be honest, sometimes. But I always <laughs> say, look, if I'm writing horror, I want to scare you. If I'm writing sex, I want to turn you on. If I'm writing horror and sex, I want to turn you on while I'm scaring you. <laughs> you know, that's, that's the point of it. And um, I think that you can't really, you can't really talk about writing sex without someone asking you. So does this, oh, is this what you do? Have you done everything you've written about? I'm like, yes, I've, I've, I've eviscerated my partner and eaten his <laughs> And it was like a real turning point in our relationship because after that, I couldn't get rid of him. Like, <laughs> but at the same time, when I write scenes that are sad or heartbreaking, sometimes I cry. Yep. Yeah, of course. Absolutely. We want to evoke emotion. And I think the highest compliment that any reader can tell me is that you made me cry or you made me get turned on, or you scared me. You made me turn the lights on because I was so creeped out. You know, whatever it is, that's the highest compliment. Absolutely. Yeah, isn't that what Franz Kafka said? Something about, I'm paraphrasing here, something about uh, writing is the, the ax that breaks up the frozen sea within. Oh. Oh. Wow. That was paraphrased. That's not his wonderful I, wording. Yes, I'm just made of ice. <laughs> oh, you know what I mean. I mean, when, when people yeah. read, 
things for a reason. Part of it's entertainment, of course, but, you know, they're also reading for some, we're all human. We're all trying to figure out what the hell this is, how we got here, where we're going and all that stuff, you know, and, and knowing about death is, is not the easiest thing for human beings. So everybody's trying to understand what life is about, how to live it, how to, how to cope with it, how to cope with death, how to cope with birth, how to cope with everything. So writing also does that for you, and it should theoretically take you to some place that you didn't expect to go and maybe open you up in some way. That would be really good writing to, to move a, a, a reader to that. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd like to uh, just address a couple of little writing tips. I know uh, we're almost at the end here, but um, now we all, you know, erotica, whether it's horror or fantasy or science fiction or whatever, you know, we live in 2017 where there's specific ideas about sex and, and such. Um, how do you guys handle safe sex and birth control, or do you? Uh, does it matter? Does you know? I know. I, I, I'm sure. Uh, you know, specific imprints um, have specific rules because I know I did when I'm doing my. Well, it used to be Ravenous Romance, but now it's Riverdale Avenue books. And uh, for me, I just kind of say, well, this is a fantasy, so you can pretend they're using condoms or not. It's up to you. But how do you guys deal with it, or do you? Or you just. Do you, like, show them putting on the condom every time or, you know, checking the pregnancy stick and all that stuff? Or, you know. <laughs> um, well, I'll jump in if it's okay. Um, uh, so it depends on what I'm writing. If I'm writing a romance, especially a contemporary romance that doesn't have any fantasy or horror or any other kind of elements, I absolutely make sure that the reader knows that safe sex is being practiced. I don't specifically necessarily describe it, but absolutely either the characters have a conversation or there's you know some description of birth control or something because I think in a contemporary world, responsible adults make sure that they're safe. But in a horror or a fantasy, a dark fantasy, or especially any kind of historical flavored uh, story, then I don't necessarily bring it up because, <laughs> okay, so what's really, what's scarier than having unprotected sex? Like, <laughs> <laughs> like number one, like you, so you, this, you know, you've had it and then you're super scared afterwards. So, you know, I think that lends itself really well to some kind of a, a horror feeling. And generally, so if it's a, if it's a romance, they have a conversation or it's mentioned, but not necessarily in specific detail. I assume the reader knows how it works, but if it's in horror or dark fantasy or, or something like that, um, a lot of times it's not mentioned. Um, it's not necessarily a part of what's going on. So that's how I, that's for me. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, you know, I'm writing vampires, so it, it just doesn't apply. <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, but, you know, hey, if you're writing a story that is a, a contemporary story, as you say, it's about people today and how they are. And they, it's a realistic approach to the situation. So it fits into that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yep, it, it absolutely does. <laughs> I like that. What's more scary than having unprotected sex? <laughs> That's a good one. Um, okay, so... 
Well, I like to say a lot that, you know, people say, oh, you write romance and you write horror. And I say, well, they're pretty much the same because there's usually a lot of screaming and <laughs> a lot of fluids. So it's <laughs> and also scarier than falling in love. I mean, that's like that's the most scariest thing that anybody ever does ever. So there are a lot of parallels. And orgasm is called little death, right? So, I don't know. <laughs> and, and when people say, oh, you shouldn't have sex in horror, my goodness. Oh, no, I don't want to, you know, I don't get your chocolate in my peanut butter. Don't get your sexy sex in my horror. Holy cow. Like, horror as a whole, that your adrenaline is going, your heart is pumping, you're sweating. I mean... Horror and sex to me perfectly go hand in hand. There's nothing there's nothing more perfectly paired than erotic and horror together. That's how I've always felt, but I tell you, I, I you know, and that was one of the things I was gonna talk about next anyway, so here we are. Um, you know, I, I've had people write to me, you know, how they hate horror with their sex, you know, like you said, like the peanut butter and chocolate. It's like, no, it's, I love Reese's peanut butter cups. They're my favorite. And so is erotic horror. Um, and, and I'm just like, everybody has sex. Like, why wouldn't people in a horror story have sex? Um, you know, and just, let, let's see, I was trying, I was going to say here, um, uh, just because people have sex um, in a horror story doesn't mean they have to die because, you know, they have all those, you know, slasher movies. You have sex, you're dead. You know, you're dead because you had sex, you know. But I think that's dumb. And, yeah, and I, I've had great arguments with people at signings about, um, you know, why Why do you put sex in with horror? I would have liked your book if there was no sex in it. And I'm thinking the book wouldn't exist without sex because sex as you guys were talking earlier, it was an integral part of the plot. So I don't know what book you would have been reading. <laughs> but yeah, like, do you guys have, how, how do you guys handle that when people bitch about the sex? Like, but you see, people don't bitch to me about the sex in my books. And some of it's pretty graphic and extreme. Yeah, and and over the totally extreme stuff. don't bitch at me. They, they, they don't say anything. You're you know, afraid you're going to shackle them to something. <laughs> right. <laughs> Shut up and get in the corner. <laughs> But basically, I, you know, I don't have those kinds of reactions from readers. I don't know why, but uh, I just assume that there's, they're getting something out of the book or they're not reading any more of the series that I do and they'll go somewhere else and they're not going to tell me. I don't know, you know. I had a um, review, um, I had a couple of reviews for the book that I just did, Revenge of the Vampire King, and it's, like I said, it's full of very extreme sex and, uh the one reviewer ended up in this, but the review saying, and I, I could tell because she mentioned the sex a few times, <laughs> she ended up saying that this was a, a brave book. And I, I thought that was a really nice thing to say. I didn't think it was the nicest review ever, but, um, you know, that, that at least, she understood what I was trying to do, you know, even though it probably, you know, almost knocked her off her chair. I got the feeling, you know, it's very extreme. So, but, but, you know, that kind of reaction, I don't care. That's okay with me because she understood what the basis of this was. The, in a, it's, it's a brave thing in a world where there's an awful lot of um, people bullying other people, I guess you would say, in the name of political correctness. And don't get me wrong, I mean, you know, I think there are certain things that definitely all people should have rights and no one should be discriminated against because of their gender or their skin color or any of that. But there's a lot of people using the PC 
hammer to hammer other people over the head now, which I don't like very much. Um, so I think, you know, it's nice to be able to write something and just do it. And if people don't like it, they can go somewhere else. Yeah. Well, there are so many books for people to read. And I think the odd thing about adding sex is like, like Sephra said, everyone has sex or, or, or wants to have sex. I mean, it's a very basic human need and drive. And so when, when you add it into a story, and as I said, I think that it always should be organic. There are plenty of stories that just throw in sex for the sake of it. And I don't know that they work so well, but what, you know, what better way to connect people? How do people connect, but falling in love or sex or sexual connection or whatever. And so, you know, the basis of, of horror is this thing where you're going through something super scary and how, how do you get out of it? You, you, you have a partner or you have a sex interest or you have this release or there are so many reasons why sex to me works in horror that erotic release works in horror or how they are paired. And if you don't like it, read something else. There are lots of things that don't have sex in them. You know, yeah. Move on. <laughs> Find something that works for you. You know, um, but it it is a funny thing that sexual content in stories. People, I've had a lot of like sort of comments or emails or whatever. People are really affronted. Not just you know, I read this and I didn't care for it, but also you shouldn't do this. You shouldn't put this in there because I don't like it. Yeah. Amazing. It's amazing people have that uh, hubris. Yeah. And I, I mean, I always, I, um, when I was, I want to say when I was, well, I was in elementary school when they aired the Franklin Jella Virgin, Virgin, ooh, Virgin, oops, I, <laughs> <laughs> oops, the Franklin Jella version of Dracula aired on television. And it was the, you know, it was the thing where your parents let you stay up and, and watch it or whatever. Recently, I just was gifted with a DVD for my birthday, a DVD version of it, and I hadn't seen it in years. It was still as sexy. <laughs> well, and so it, oh, so that's why I am the way I am. <laughs> I mean, I can totally trace back my, my womanhood and my a lot of the themes that I write about to that version of Dracula, where he was so sexy and he had that amazing 70s hair with the flipped hair and <laughs> <laughs> so high, still so high. Yeah, you, you, you it's a really central thing. I think that's that has a lot of connection with people and you either, you know, you either get it and like it or you don't. Well, my vampire of choice was Christopher Lee. <laughs> yeah. his, his autobiography was called Tall, Dark, and Gruesome. <laughs> yeah, that's right, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's funny. It is very personal because a, a lot of people were very um, 
you know, attracted to him as a, a person, attracted to him as a man. You could see it with a lot of the fans, but also for that particular character because of the just the way the character was. Um, I remember going to this, actually, when I lived in Toronto, I went to this um, bar on Spadina Avenue that used to show movies. There was some guy or Reg, somebody who used to show these Reg old Hart. movies. Hey, maybe he's related to Megan. <laughs> <laughs> so I went there to this to see to see Horror of Dracula, which I hadn't seen in years. And the room was full of, you know, not so many goths, because I was one of the goth elements, but more punk kids. And every one of those scenes where Dracula came on and he was like really, you know, hot and sexy in the in the way of the times when it was made, they went hysterical with laughter. They just thought it was the funniest thing. So it's all, you know, whatever whatever works for you. That didn't work for them. It worked for me. I was shocked though. <laughs> but it's generational too though, because I know like things that used to horrify me as a kid, like kids today would laugh at, you know, like it's just what you're exposed to. And because that. Bella Lugosi was the big deal in the thirties, right? He was the one that all the women swooned over. Yeah. Exactly. Well, I guess them too. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, when I think that, um, you know, just in general, what, what you're exposed to or what, or what sort of resonates with you as generationally or, you know, however, like, so there was a time when women weren't allowed to express their sexuality. So the only way they really could would be if someone came along and like crept in their room at night and sucked their necks. <laughs> <laughs> and other things. <laughs> the vampire. <laughs> the Victorian novel. That's exactly it. That's who he was. He was a upper crust, you know, guy and he crept into the bedrooms of the upper crust women at night and sucked their blood. And then he felt guilty about it, of course. And he threw himself into Mount Vesuvius at the end after 2,000 pages. <laughs> it was long. <laughs> I think there's a reason why vampires are still... Everyone says, oh, vampires, they're out. You know, they're not popular anymore. Vampires are super sexy. They're always going to be popular. Oh, yes. Yeah. So they're about to have a new run, too, because, uh, you know, Anne Rice has got the uh, TV show coming on there. Her yes. son, Chris, is also working with, uh, based on Vampire Lestat and her novels. Yeah. So it's she's, another, she's, you know, resurgence. Another right. resurrection for the vampire. <laughs> <laughs> the eternal resurrection. <laughs> <laughs> I think okay. there's a lot of sexuality that's intertwined with horror and shame and the ideals of what is appropriate or not and how, you know, it's it's all connected. But that's a whole other, I mean, that's another two or three hours worth of discussion. Yeah, it is. Okay, so one more th one more kind of thing to get through. I know we're running late here. Um, okay, so these days I'm finding it difficult to write horror for many reasons. I'm finding technology is making it challenging. I'm finding political and social climate challenging. And the way I wrote in the 90s isn't going to work these days. Where we used to have fantasies about being seduced, as we were just talking about with Dracula, um, now many people would call that rape. Um, I just saw Beauty and the Beast last week, uh, the live-action version. Uh, there was a lot of fuss before the movie came out that there was a gay character. And yet, my, my own mind kept going to, um, isn't this a story about bestiality? Uh, like, shouldn't we be a little more concerned about a girl falling in love with an animal and be encouraged to love him by talking candles and teapots? Um, is this a beast? You know, this is a bestiality story. After all, she has to fall in love with him as the beast for the spell to be broken. 
Um, there's, but there seems to be a special spot for werewolves, vampires, and zombies, and other not-humans. And I'm not exactly sure what I'm asking, but I guess in a roundabout way, I'm asking how far is too far, and are there places you won't go in your erotica? Um, well, okay, I'll jump in again. Um, so I think that I, I love zombies, love zombies so much. I've written a number of zombie stories, love them, love them, love them. Even ventured into zombie erotica in my, uh, it's, it was a serial, but now it's published as, as one whole piece. It's called the resurrected. So there is a, there is a zombie love scene. But it's so gross. It's super disgusting. It's gross. Like basically, you know, they they eat each other, which I don't know is kind of the sexiest thing you could do to your partner. I don't know. But I think so. Zombies for me are like that's a tricky thing. But vampires, so hot, always so hot. And werewolves again, depending on how you do it. So there's that part where is he a guy or a girl or or, or are they an animal? For me personally, bestiality is crossing the line. That's where I that's where I ended. I won't. I would not do the love scene in animal form for either partner. That's my that's my line. So, but it would be okay, like you know, like after Beauty and the Beast, and he, you know the spoiler alert. She's with you know she falls in love with him, and they he becomes the prince again. So when they go off and have sex later on, that's okay because he's not the beast anymore. Maybe well, she'll or, be. Which would never be okay because he was a beast once. Won't she be bored? If <laughs> he was so hot when he was. She had a huge library. She liked all those books. The so library, <laughs> good. <laughs> Probably a lot of porn in that library. No. <laughs> to do in the castle at night by candlelight <laughs> I, I know like in love with him in that form but he becomes something else well okay like we're not supposed to be shallow right like he's yeah. hotter than the prince or whatever but she fell in love with him in this bestial form and then he changes back he's not the man that she fell in love with That's exactly right <laughs> no, I know it's so difficult to be like that whole story, I don't. I never liked that story. It doesn't make sense to me. But. <laughs> well, I haven't seen the movie. I can't say anything about it. But I absolutely hated the poster. I hated it because what's her name? The the girl, the the one oh, that's in so it. Bad looks like such cast. She is no friggin' girl. girl that's yeah, I mean, she in the poster. She looks like she's fifteen, and he looks like this. You know, typical sort of old man that's trying to seduce a child. Yet, so I don't know. That's that's supposed to be. Well, in this current version, the guy who plays the Beast, he's a young guy, and he's really cute. He's, oh, I'm he's sure it's when you see the movie. I'm just talking about the poster. The poster. Yeah, yeah, no, the po she's kissing a beast. Like, <laughs> it's an animal. <laughs> like, why are people mad about that? They're worried about, oh, some little, some guy's hero worshipping the, you know, asshole. And, you know, they, they say it's a gay subplot, but, you know, if you see the movie, it's like no gayer than any other in my view, because, you know, there's always the idol worship and, and he's, he's more of an idol worshiper. And, yeah, he dances with a man at the end. So what? Like, to me, that's nothing. But, of course, you know, um, but well, you know, the, the things I wouldn't that, write are they have to do with animals and they have to do with children. When I say children, I mean young children up to, say, the age of 16 or 17, you know, 
any anybody under that age, because I don't feel that children and certainly animals do not have a choice in this. You know, they're not making a decision. They're not having a choice. They're being taken advantage of in sexuality. So um, that's not for me. It doesn't turn me on. It just makes me usually really angry. So, um, yeah, that would be my limits, I suppose. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I think um, in general, I love vampires. I love, 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 love werewolves. But almost in horror as as the monster versus the romantic lead. Right. Although vampires, okay, I already admitted that, you know, at <laughs> like I was totally, totally over Frank Langella, but, you know, as as the scary thing, not necessarily the, the sexy, you know, long-term partner. I, lo- I love werewolves kind of as the monster versus the sexy hero. And I don't know if it's because of the bestiality, as- bestiality aspect of that or or just that um, werewolves are scary and this dude becomes a wolf or this chick becomes a wolf and then all of a sudden, holy crap, I've, That like that's the ultimate, I think it's an analogy for the worst unprotected sex you've ever had. <laughs> that could be. <laughs> like, holy crap. I did it with this person, and now they're going to eat off my face. Oh, no. <laughs> and am I going to give birth to puppies? <laughs> yes. So I think there's a whole lot of layers with that sort of thing. But, um, you know, I don't know if it's the bestiality thing or just, uh, I don't know. I can't, I don't know about that. I'll have to have some introspection and get back to you. Yeah. And do so do you guys just, quickly like do you guys think because you know like in these modern times you know in some of my books now I, I've read things where uh, people are accusing me of having rape scenes and stuff whereas you know 10 years ago they were just seduction and a nice fantasy um, are you guys finding different ways to write now or are you just writing how you always did into hell with everyone you're gonna write what you're gonna write or are you conscious of these new societal ideas of you know, consent and permission. Like, I, I have to admit, that's why I've been a little stuck on my next books. It's like, um, you know, they're witches and they're casting spells. So do they have free will? Am I raping them? Because, you know, and I wrote a robot sex doll story. And it's like, does the robot have free will? You know, and I'm getting myself all stressed out with these things because I read too much on Facebook, I guess. But do you guys have us uh, about these ideas about whether it's rape or fantasy or dark fantasy or you know what I mean? You know what I'm saying? Oh, I think people are too serious today. <laughs> I mean, anybody who's like, you know, going to be a killer or, you know, mass murder or something, they're not going to be affected by a novel. Come on, you know, this is not how it works. They're just, you know, sick and disturbed. So th- this has nothing to do with anything that's a problem. This is fantasy. Writing novels, this is a fictional world that's invented. It's an imaginative world. It's meant to be, to some extent, greater or lesser metaphor. You know, you're reading something that you pop into something else in a way in your in your brain. So don't take it so seriously. I mean, just go back and be entertained a little bit. Okay. And Megan? I think that... Um so the idea of consent or, or not, um, I mean, if you, it, it's very different writing horror versus, let's say, romance, where there is a real standard 
of what behavior or expectation readers have. And so I do, I am aware of when I'm, depending on what I'm writing, I am very aware of what I'm writing, how it crosses a line, whether there's active consent, whether it is stated. Um, I don't write a lot of hardcore BDSM stuff, but, you know, that that became it used to be that BDSM literature was solely relegated to the erotica genre. It didn't cross into mainstream. It certainly didn't cross into mainstream, much less romance. But the lines are blurred now. And so readers have an expectation that there's a conversation, at least between the two characters who are having this relationship, that there is consent or that there is the expectation of consent in some way. So that that can be tricky because you're you know you want to write this if you're writing erotic stuff like some of the hottest things are the things that people think cross lines that's what makes it hot yeah it's true yeah so when you're writing when you're writing a story there's this really fine balance between okay do they have a written contract they both sign with a notary like normal people you know like generally people just talk about things beforehand um but even in when you're even writing that sort of thing there is this level of fantasy where people want to escape i mean that's why they read stuff you know people read read books to escape and they want to be swept away so there is this little bit of wiggle room where you can write stuff that maybe either is either over the top, you know, more than what people would regularly do or super way less than what people would do. And I find that it can be a really gray area depending on what you're writing and what reader expectations are and what people think. And you can write the same story and have people screaming like, oh my God, that's a rape fantasy versus, well, that was really, holy cow, they really went over the top and I mean, they really need to have the judge sign the order that said that it was okay that he put his, you know, in his, in her thing or whatever. <laughs> I think, you know, it, you're right about that, like in life too, because I mean, sex really is a gray area in a lot of ways and it's a dance. It really is a dance between two people and you can't, you can't hammer out rules exactly for this. You know, it's, it, it's funny how people now want to have rules and regulations. I'm not advocating rape. So before anybody jumps down my throat, you know, it's, it's, but it's, it really is a dance and you, it's not predictable. It is a dangerous dance. Sex has always been a danger in some ways because you know, you're, it's not so much a physical danger. It's more the danger of the heart. So, you know, they, there's, there's something going on here that's very um, elaborate and, and uh, it's like filigree work, you know, it's just, a, it's delicate and it's, it's, it can lead anywhere. You don't know what's going to happen and, and it's a frightening thing and it's an exciting thing. So I think that, you know, too much, too much trying to make it this or that or put it in black and white takes all the charge out of it to me. I think that's why sex erotic, erotica and horror work so well together, exactly as you just said. It's a dangerous thing. It is a dangerous thing to give yourself to someone else. Whether you are the Victorian virgin in the white gown offering your neck to the guy coming through your window or you're a contemporary woman 
who's supposed to be all in charge of her sexuality and yet is willing to give up her heart to a guy who may or may not be a werewolf. You're not sure. <laughs> I think I think that's why erotic horror, erotica and horror work so well together because it is all about fear. It's about that base fear. And if we're lucky in our lives, we will fall in love and have that terror of giving ourselves to another person, but we will never worry about something really being in the basement coming up from the dark. <laughs> if we're super lucky in all our lives, we'll fall in love, but we won't get killed by a ghost. <laughs> <laughs> Yay. All right. So, um, well, that's a great way to end this. And uh, so why don't you two uh, uh, just give the listeners a little bit about um, your latest work and a website where people can find you, uh, Megan, or any, you know, where you are in social media, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. So, Megan, you can start. All right. Um, well, you can always find me at meganhart.com, M-E-G-A-N-H-A-R-T. I'm also on Facebook. You can find my author page at readinbed.com. It's generally romance-oriented, but I do have a Megan Hart horror page, and I do cross-post. So if you are not into the romance stuff, but you like the scary stuff, you can find me there. Fantastic. Nancy? Uh, well, I'm on Facebook. I have a Twitter. Um, you can go to my website and you can find any of my books there listed. It's just nancykilpatrick.com. And the new one, of course, is it's the first of a series of six novels and it's called Revenge of the Vampire King and it's V-A-M-P-I-R. It's an old spelling, an old word. It's take leave that E off. <laughs> so you can find it on Amazon and um, uh, you can find it in the ebook or trade paperback or hardcover. Just look <laughs> and buy. <laughs> oh, Megan, did you have a book you wanted to plug? A book that I wanted to plug? Well, series or many books or anthology perhaps. <laughs> I want to plug an anthology project. It's called Intersections Six Tales of Ouija Horror. All six stories, um, I have one and Sephira has one. All of them have the uh, theme of having a Ouija board connection. And mine, I wouldn't say that it's erotic horror, but it definitely has an erotic scene in it. And when I was writing it, it was definitely, let's just say there's a lot of blood and oral. <laughs> I just bought it yesterday as an ebook. Yay, we have a customer. <laughs> well, it was fun when I was writing it. I was like, this is not something I could ever get away with in a romance for sure. But holy no. cow, horror. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> do what you want to do in horror. That's the fun thing about horror. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you both very much for being part of the Great Lakes Horror Company podcast as presented by the Library of the Damned and our special Sex and Slaughter edition. Thank you very much, uh, Nancy and Megan, and have a great night. Welcome back. I am Jason White, and I am here with Lucy Taylor. Lucy is the author of seven novels, including Dancing with Demons, Spree, Nailed, 
Saving Souls, Eternal Heart, and the Stoker Award-winning The Safety of Unknown Cities. Her stories have appeared in over a hundred magazines and anthologies, including the Mammoth Book of Historical Erotica, The Best of Cemetery Dance, 20th Century Gothic, The Year's Best Fantasy and Horror, and The Century's Best Horror Fiction. Her most recent collection is Fatal Journeys, horror stories set in exotic lands, published by Overlook Connection Press, with an introduction by acclaimed horror author Jack Ketchum. Welcome to the show, Lucy. Well, I'm delighted to be here, Jason. Thanks for having me. Oh, uh, as you could probably tell, I pretty much took that bio from from your bio on the internet. <laughs> it, it sounded familiar. <laughs> it sounded a little familiar, but there was a lot of stuff I left out, and I, I did want to talk about that briefly. Um, uh, you also mentioned in your bio that you have a love for traveling, and from what I've read about you, you've been all over the world. So I was wondering, how has travel affected your writing, but not only in writing about location, but about the people who populate your stories? Oh, that's an interesting question. Well, I have been fortunate to have been able to do a lot of traveling. Some of that was when I was writing nonfiction, and a lot of that was travel writing. Um, and how has it influenced my horror writing? I think to the greatest degree, you know, um, some years ago, I got in on the ground floor of a series of anthologies called Exotic Gothic, Mm-hmm. edited by Danelle Olson, and I was fortunate enough to be able to get stories in each of, I believe there were five, actually, um, of exotic gothics. And so the premise of that, of course, was a gothic horror story set in an exotic land. And my travel activities benefited me a great deal when it came to writing those stories. And as far as people, wow, that really is a good question. Um the only thing that springs immediately to mind, to be honest, the the uh, novel that you mentioned, The Safety of Unknown Cities, now this has nothing to do with people in foreign lands, mm-hmm. but the way I got the title for that novel, I realized many, many years ago when I was traveling alone in Europe for the first time that I never feel as safe as when I am in an unknown city where, of course, today, in today's world with connectivity that we have, it's a little bit different. But back in those days, I really could realize that basically nobody on the planet knew where I was. And I loved that feeling. That would be an interesting feeling. (laughs) It gave me a great sense of freedom and of safety. Yeah. Now, you also mentioned, and I quote, uh, (laughs) that you jogged with a troop of baboons in Zaire. <laughs> now, I did. <laughs> now, I, I, that got my curiosity peaked. Uh, how how exactly did that occur, and what was it like? Were you terrified? <laughs> well, you're right. <laughs> and I probably should have been. Um, actually, now that I think of the way I phrased it, it sounds as if the baboons were going jogging, and I went along. <laughs> but what you see them wearing their shorts and that, and the headbands? Yeah, yeah, it's kind of, yeah, it kind of sounds like that. Not not exactly. Um, I was actually I had been I was staying in Zimbabwe and Zaire and Zimbabwe right next I was right next to the border and I have been until the last couple of years and my knees are not as great as they once were um, I have been kind of a lifelong jogger mm-hmm. and I've always loved jogging in foreign countries so I'm a very early in the morning one one morning um, and I just crossed the border into Zaire 
and there was a troop of baboons, and they were running alongside of me. <laughs> and yeah, the the thought did cross my mind. You know, these these guys are supposed to be really dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't think it would be smart to turn around and run in the other direction. No. <laughs> so I just kept going, and they kept going, and all was well. well that's awesome. <laughs> I, it's memories like that's one thing I love about traveling is just experiencing different things like that. It's it's uh, it really creates some special memories. Oh, it it does the unexpected. Yeah, you, you really never know when something quite amazing or whimsical or who knows is going to occur. Yeah, so it's so quite you, fun. You've been writing for for decades now, and long time. And I your have. your first novel, uh, you won the Bram Stoker for that. What was that like? I did. Winning for your first time. Well, it was, oh my gosh, it was wonderful. Um, I was asked that not long ago, and I guess I had a little bit of a, of a suspicion because I, I had a friend who was very good friends with Harlan Ellison, and so Harlan had kind of called me up and said, you know, you really don't want to miss uh, World Horror Convention this year. <laughs> and he said it in that way that I thought, oh, Oh, okay. <laughs> this sounds like really good news. So I wasn't entirely surprised, but of course, still, it was it was wonderful, and I'm always just very grateful that I had the opportunity and that it worked out that way. Yeah, uh, did and you? That a lot of people seem to like the book. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, that's fine. Uh, I was just wondering if uh, if you found yourself intimidated at all by that because it was your first novel, and then you win the Stoker for it. Uh, did you have? Did it? Did it haunt you in any negative way in writing the second book? You know, I think you're right. And I didn't I didn't think about it at the time, although I have read that in different articles, you know, subsequently, how that does happen to people. And I think it probably did, because um, I don't know. I didn't think The Safety of Unknown Cities was going to be that well received. Actually, it was originally a novella that I did for... Santal. I don't know if you ever encountered him. Probably, probably that was before your time. I don't know, but um, he was an editor a long time back, and he published. I think it was Unnatural Acts and Other Stories, which was one of my first collections. And the novella Safety of Unknown Cities was in that collection. He suggested, "Why don't you turn it into a novel?" So, at that point, um, it was it was easier because I had already written the novella. But no, I didn't. I didn't expect it to win a Stoker. That's certainly true. And yeah, yeah I think I think it is a little intimidating. Definitely. Yeah. Now you've uh, you've been writing horror erotica um, pretty much the entirety of your uh, fiction writing career. Is that correct? I have. Uh, I think there were periods where I wrote more erotic horror than I currently do, but I still definitely I still write erotic horror. Uh, what is it that draws you to uh, this subgenre? Well, I like sex. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, come on, write, write what you enjoy, no? Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah I, I like erotic hard, genuinely. it's um, I like horror, first of all, and I have since I was a kid because I like being scared, and I like the idea that there's so much more out there than what we realize. So there's that. And then you add the erotic component, and to me, that just amps it up tremendously. Yeah. Because as a human being, of course, we've all got erotic impulses, 
And if you mix that in with fear or terror or whatever, it's just such an uh, incredible cocktail of uh, of desire warring with fear, which I find very compelling. That's interesting, because my next question was, uh, what would you say is the connection between horror and erotica that makes the subgenre what it is? Like, what, because this is a fairly uh, big subgenre within the horror genre, um, yeah, but I've always wondered what what's the correlation between sex and horror. <laughs> well, I think they're very much inextricably linked and intertwined. Yeah, even on a very basic level, you know, if you really think about it, um, I'm not sure if I can speak for men on this one. I'd have to think about it, but at least with with male heroes, with male leads, you very seldom that I can think of have. Um, What's the word I would want? It's an old-fashioned word, a milk toast. You know, a very unassuming, uh, timid, placid man that uh, the women are all running after. I don't know how often that happens in life. Maybe. I don't know. But usually there's some quality of ferocity, even if it's suppressed a little bit, in, in the male hero type. Mm-hmm. That if he's even if even if he's not an anti-hero, even if he's a good guy, he's still capable of of some really extreme things, and I think that's very alluring. I think the same thing for women that men must feel about women. If a if a woman is alluring enough to be really attractive, and the guy really wants her, and yet there's that quality of he has some reason to think she may actually be dangerous. Mm-hmm. That makes it so much more potent. And one thing I would like to add, you know, they did a study. I love to begin sentences with, you know, they did a study. (laughs) But they did. um, Some years back about fear and arousal. And they took some men and they got independently, each one. They didn't know it was a bunch of them doing it. They got the men to cross this bridge, this uh, one of these string-type bridges that's very wobbly and rickety and looks like you may fall to your death at any moment. Yeah. And for a lot of the guys, they just crossed the bridge, and that was the end of it. And for half the guys, they had a really attractive woman coming toward them and meet them in the center of that bridge. And afterwards, they did some tests and some questions. And the guys who met the really attractive woman, um, they rated the whole experience as much more significant and a much... um, well, I think I've told the story wrong, because I think half of the men crossed a bridge that wasn't scary. The The important part was that the bridge was scary, and they meet the beautiful woman. And they found her more, the, the more frightened they were, the more attractive they found her. Yeah, interesting. Even, even though she, yeah, even though she had no connection in and of herself to the scariness of the bridge. That's fascinating. And I think that's true. Do you th- I, I, I think that's true, definitely. I, yeah. think, I felt that. Do you think that there's a connection? Because I, I have a quote, and it's not a direct quote because I read it a long time ago, and I'm, I'm not too sure who said it either, but I'm pretty sure Graham Masterson said it. Um, uh-huh. And it, it, he said that uh, there's a there's a correlation also between like I agree totally with what you say uh, that was that was very mm-hmm. well said but uh, I also agree with what Graham Masterson said and he said that there's a, a connection between the intimacy and uh, and horror uh, the intimacy of sex okay. and uh, and that fear uh, because you're you're kind of exposing yourself and uh, you know uh, 
especially you know for like one night stands and and whatnot. But we don't oh, need absolutely. to get into any of that. But uh, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but yeah, there there is an intimacy issue. Well, there is, and it's funny you would bring that up because I was looking over a few books, knowing I was going to be doing this interview with you, and there's um, an erotic horror collection called Of Devils and Deviants that I wrote an introduction to some years ago, and one of the points I made in the introduction, um, you know, that sex and intimacy and vulnerability, it's that vulnerability and the letting go of the, of the false self, I guess, some yeah. might call it, um, that people really desire that and they really fear it. That's and true. so you've got the more the greater the intimacy, the greater the risk, really, whether it's the risk of being hideously rejected or hideously murdered for many people it's almost <laughs> the same <Yeah. laughs> then there's some people who get excited about the uh, the murder scenario <laughs> well absolutely it's it's like that roller coaster that you have every reason to think that the car's not going to jump the tracks, but we know they sometimes do and People tend to jump the tracks a lot more frequently than roller coasters. Yeah. <laughs> so there's that. Yeah, uh, it's that living uh, dangerously, I guess that uh, that you know makes you feel more alive. Um, Absolutely. I was also uh, in the actual technique of writing sex scenes. Mm -hmm. I've noticed that <laughs> sometimes it's done very poorly and uh, turns out yeah rather silly. Uh, but I don't, I don't find that with anything of yours that I've read. So how do you approach writing effective erotica? Oh, that's a good question, too. I think it depends on what kind of sex scene you're writing. Um, I don't generally do anything that I think could be considered straight romance, but I'm sure some of my scenes have more of the romantic tinge maybe than others. And on the other hand, then they're hardcore S&M-type scenes that I have written, and um, I think the, the biggest mistake I see in writing erotica, sometimes um, people may tend to approach it with a insert part A into slot B sort of <laughs> attitude, but it's, yeah. very, it's very much like that poor lover that we've all had, that is sort of like reading from the sex manual over your shoulder, and that doesn't go over well, either in real life or in writing. That's true. Um, I yeah, I think the idea is to get across whatever it is you're, whatever kind of reaction you're trying to stimulate in the reader, find a way to do that, but don't hit them over the head with it. Don't make it clumsy, because then they might start laughing. You probably don't <laughs> want that. No, you don't want that. <laughs> so it's one reason why I don't write sex uh, or too much erotica, because uh, <laughs> because they would either come really? out really awkward or it would just be too good and I would never finish it. <laughs> 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 well, that's a good answer. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, that that actually brings me like uh, how like, when you're writing erotica, especially like the uh, mm -hmm. uh, the more erotic scenes. Uh, yeah. Do you dip into like fantasy very often? Like you know what um, you fantasize okay. about? Oh sure. Um, I to be perfectly honest, I think I I use more. Well, in Safety of Unknown Cities, I borrowed very heavily from my own experiences. I made them a lot more um, psychopathic than uh, <laughs> my own experiences. But, uh, yeah, of course, of course, I'm going to tend to, I think most writers do, of course, I'm going to tend to write the kind of sex scenes that I enjoy. 
whether yeah. in fantasy or in real life, as opposed to, I'm not going to write something that, uh, unless the plot for some reason calls for it, um, that I would find kind of ho-hum. Yeah. Oh, recently you rela- released uh, your collection, Fatal Journeys. Um, mm-hmm. Now, this is uh, going back kind of to the traveling. Um, uh, did But were there more themes that run throughout these stories than, than just uh, traveling? Well, gosh, I'm not sure. Um, it's, I would be tempted to say probably not, because there are very many different types of stories. Several of the stories are reprints from the Exotic Gothic collection, mm-hmm. and several of them um, are never previously published. But there, And some, I would have to say, are not erotic at all. There's one, for example, um, The High and Mighty in Me. That's a um, story of a person searching for the serial killer of young boys in the Deep South. Mm-hmm. And it's, um, you know, I hope people enjoyed that story, but it's it's certainly not really erotic. And then some of the stories, um, Summerland, I think, is the most erotic story in this book. And some people might disagree with me. But, yeah, I, w- I would say if you're looking for erotica and you pick up a copy of Fatal Journey, Summerland is the most erotic to me. But as far as a theme, not I don't really think so. I think the theme is is travel and the the thrills because travel, you know, especially exotic travel can be a lot like sex. It's it's highly desirable and it's kind of scary. Awesome. You're you're going into the unknown. Yeah. Um how did you come to pick the stories that are in Fatal Journeys and, you know, all the other uh, collect. You have quite a few collections. Um, how how do you choose? Like, do you just come up with like, okay, like uh, all these stories are about uh, you know different locations, so I'm going to create a, a traveling one. Is that how you do it, or or is there other ways? Well, I haven't really had a themed collection prior to Fatal Journeys, and I I actually don't remember if um if this was my editor publisher Dave Hinchberger's idea or if it was mine, it may have been Dave's idea, that I had all these um, exotic travel stories and maybe we should do a collection around that um, because all of them, to, to one extent or another, all of them do involve travel. Most of them are more recently written stories. Now, there's one, I'm looking at the index as we speak, there's one going north that is a very old story but it was one of my favorite stories. So I suggested to Dave Hinchberger, how about including that one? And he said, yeah, let's do that. Um, so it was just that I had an uncommon number of of uh, horror stories in, in exotic settings, and we thought it might be fun to do something with that. Yeah. Um, uh, before we go, I was wondering a couple more things. Um, are there any newer writers that you're excited about today that you're reading? Oh, my. Well, there's so many wonderful writers that I'm excited about. As far as newer ones, I'm reluctant to say because I'm not sure. I know the old established ones that I like. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, the newer ones, they, I, I may not be real clear on how new exactly they are. I know that there are some wonderful writers that were um, published, I think, for the first time or close to the first time in Gamut, the online magazine Gamut, which yes. is wonderful. Um, so I know you could look for some wonderful rising stars in Gamut, and 
there's just so many, but I am hesitant to name a specific group because I might I might be talking about someone who's not as uh, new as they might be new to me, in other words, yeah. and not really be new. Well, I never can keep up with I'm, all the reading that I need to be doing. Yeah, oh, neither can I. <laughs> um, I'm glad <laughs> I'm glad that you brought up Gamut though, because that's a really stellar, uh, solid piece of uh, well, a, a fiction magazine uh, run by. Uh, yes, they're wonderful. Yeah, and uh, I. I love uh, I love those guys. Um, so, are you working on anything right now that you can talk about? Something that's coming out soon? Well, I'm working on a novel, uh, but it's not. It's set you know, close to Gallup, New Mexico, but it's not coming out soon. Uh, the next thing I have coming out, though, um, are you familiar with Tor. dot com? Oh yes. Yeah. Okay. You have Tor. a story out with um, them. Uh, one of their uh, yeah. one of their uh, shorts. Well, it's coming out. Actually, it's a novelette coming out on May third. Um, yes. And it's called Sweetlings, and it's a science fiction horror novelette that's uh, post-apocalyptic. And I really love post-apocalyptic horror, so I had a lot of fun writing Sweetlings. Awesome. Uh, and that's yeah. coming out in so May. So look for that. That's actually May third. It has a, it has a date. Excellent. May third. I'm going to check that out because uh, I have some similar interests in that. <laughs> I just love that oh, kind great. of stuff. So, oh, great. Then you may, you may like this. Oh, I probably yeah. will. <laughs> so where can listeners find you online? Well, um, the best place to find... Well, actually, that's not true. I was starting to say Great Jones Street, but I do want to mention Great Jones Street. They are an app, and... I think they're wonderful, and I swear I'm not saying that because they've published a bunch of my stories, but it's a free app. All you do is go online and Google Great Jones Street and then download the app to your smartphone, and there are literally hundreds and hundreds of stories, not just horror, but every genre you can imagine. You just go to that particular genre or that particular writer, and it's it's all free if you've got five minutes you're waiting for a bus or whatever you can read some wonderful fiction and the most recent thing i sold to great jones street is uh flash fiction erotic horror called lust in the days of demons Sweet. so i don't know if that qualifies that's not exactly online but it's uh well a lot of people have smartphones these deal. days right so <laughs> that's that's really good so it's the same essentially the same thing yeah, yeah. but it i because i use it if i'm if i'm waiting for a friend or waiting for an appointment or lying in bed not ready to go to sleep yet um you can just find i you talk about new writers i've discovered all these wonderful writers that i don't think they're new but they're new to me because i don't normally read outside the horror genre to be honest and this kind of gives exposes me to some really great writing that i wouldn't have otherwise discovered so yeah great jones street it's a really terrific app awesome well thank you for talking taking the time out of your day to talk with us oh Thank you for having me, Jason. It's been fun. <laughs> All right. We'll talk to you soon. Okay. Okay. Bye. Bye. Hello. Um, I'm here with uh, Nancy Kilpatrick. Nancy has published 19 novels, over 220 short stories, with six collections of her short fiction. She has also written comic books, a graphic novel, and has edited 15 anthologies. She is the author of The Gothic Bible and, most recently, Revenge of the Vampire King. Welcome, and thank you for taking the time to talk with me and the Great Lakes Horror Company, Nancy. 
I'm delighted to be here, Jason. Thanks for inviting me. Hey, no problem. Um, uh, there's one thing, like, I've, I've seen you a couple of times at conventions and whatnot, and one thing I've noticed is you have a very large cult following. Uh, have you ever experienced anything negative or weird with any of your fans at all? No. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good cult. That's a good thing. When you say cult, you know, it brings to mind certain oddness. But, yeah, no, my fans are they're readers, and I don't think readers in general are weird. Readers are good people. <laughs> no. No, well, you're right. But uh, sometimes, you know, uh, things get a little maybe out of hand, I guess, and maybe somebody... Uh, you know, might have the wrong impression, or you know, maybe somebody's a little unhinged. I, I always like like people, writers like you who do have like a, a fairly large following like that. I always uh, wonder about you know, uh, you know, any unhinged fans. But it's good that you don't have any. So. Well, I didn't have any unhinged fans that I know of, or if they were unhinged, I didn't notice it. Well, that's uh, a good thing. Yeah. But I do have did have one experience that was writing. I wrote a book, uh, co-wrote a book with. Um, John Bassenwave for White Wolf Publishing back in the day, and uh, it was called As One Dead. And I knew nothing about that world, nothing about role playing. Mm -hmm. uh, so I had to go to a session that was held at uh, a club that no longer exists in Toronto, uh, Savage Garden. And nice. I went there, basically looked at the you know the game and how it was played. It was astounding to me because I'd never seen role playing before. And uh, talked to some of the storytellers, and they gave me the background on everything so I could write my part of it. But after that book came out, and I would be places and signing books and whatever, the people that were into the White Wolf game, they would come up to me, and they'd start talking to me as if I were playing the game. And they'd, they'd go into all of the... <laughs> White Wolf has a lot of levels of characters, you know, they, they're yeah. how close they are to, uh, you know, the, the origins and how, you know, what uh, groupings they're in, what sex they're in and so on. And, and it's all, you know, and then the personality of a particular character is a very multi-leveled world. Uh, so they would just start talking to me, you know, and saying, telling me who they were, you know, in terms of this, <laughs> uh, this leveling. <laughs> so I, I was still baffled by all of this a bit, and I just kind of nod a lot. And once in a while, I recognized it, uh, you know, something like Toriador. Oh yeah, I know what they are. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes, yeah, like being thrust into a, a, an entirely new country. <laughs> it is, and you know, when you're a writer, you're not, you're not. You're writing. That's what you do. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you're not necessarily what you're writing about. Yeah. Uh, speaking of writing, uh, you you've written a lot about vampires. Um, I was wondering, what is it that draws you most to vampires? I've always been into vampires since childhood, and I used to watch the Saturday night movies on TV, and the vampire ones were the faves. I don't know why. Um, I just, I guess, maybe because they were the most human of all of the supernaturals. Um, you could say in a way ghosts are human because they still look human, but they never quite appealed to me in the same way. Uh, zombies, they're just a little bit too dirty and rugged and dead-brained <laughs> for me. Uh, and it doesn't mean that I don't read those stories. I do read those stories and I do watch those films. It's not that. It's not that. But in terms of what compelled me were the characters that were vampire characters. And even the werewolf never engaged me in the same way. So of the supernatural realm, it really was the vampire because it's the whole idea that they were like us. And now they look like us and act like this, but they're not. So I, I always found that a compelling in terms of writing something because it's a, it gives you a big, big range of creativity. Yeah. Uh, vampires are just fascinating creatures, I've always found anyway. 
and uh, uh, you wrote a lot uh, in, from my impression, uh, in the '90s into about the mid aughts under uh, the name Amarantha Knight and yeah. Desiree Knight, correct? Yeah, I had two pen names uh, that I used, and uh, the Amarantha Knight I wrote um, the Darker Passions is a series of seven novels that were basically pastiches of Kara classics, Dracula, Frankenstein, Jekyll and Hyde, and so on. Uh, they were also very, 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 very erotic, extreme erotica, and they were fun to write because I was taking um, actual text from the originals. I was also using some dialogue from the originals and certainly the characters from the originals and trying to work in the scenes that were behind the scenes that you suspected because, uh, you know, when meant most of these books were written, it was of an era where they didn't talk about sex, so they weren't in the story, but you knew it was happening. You knew something was going on after it faded to black at the end of a particular chapter. So that's what I was writing those, those for. And they were wildly popular, I guess. <laughs> a lot of people really like those. Um, uh, and then I did some anthologies as well early anthologies. I did five of those uh, for the same publisher. Uh, they they were themed. They were things like one was uh, vampires, one was Frankenstein-type monsters, one was ghosts, demons, and uh, uh, just a, so, well, I can't remember the other one, but it was kind of a generic one. So all of these, uh, but this is back in the day. This was in the early 90s when there were a lot of writers that, that I knew from Genie, which was uh, kind of like a Facebook without the visuals uh -huh. back then. And, uh, you know, it was easy enough to get people into these books. I had a lot of writers who's big name writers like, well, Neil Gaiman was in there and Nancy Collins and gosh, it's hard to remember. Nancy Holder had stories in there. Sefri Sharon had a story. Um, golly, who else? Uh, Brian Lumley had a story. <laughs> wow. It was, you know, really easy. John Skip, I mean, these people were just there and you'd ask them and they'd say, sure. Um, a lot of these people you can't get now because they're way too big and they're, you know, just don't have the, uh, the time, especially if they're writing movies or whatever. Yeah. But back then it was easy enough. So each of those books has a whole pile of very famous people in them. <laughs> that was funny. <laughs> Which is awesome. Um, I've read some of those uh, earlier ones and, uh, you know, looking back on them, it's just, phenomenal like you say those names right like back then yeah. like neil gaiman uh back then wasn't as big as he is now but but back uh so you must feel a little bit of pride that you're you took part in uh, finding them i imagine um well i mean it was you know of the times i mean it was a bit looser back then in the early 90s it wasn't quite as loose as the 80s but it was still we were still loose enough that things were easy enough and uh, it's not like it is today, which is a whole different world. But, um, yeah, I think, you know, people were very friendly and uh, hung out together. I remember the very first World Horror Convention that I attended, which I think was maybe the third one they did. I'm not sure, but a long time ago. And I remember just sitting there. I was nervous because I was, you know, a young writer. And I was kind of sitting there looking at all this. Oh, I don't know anybody kind of thing. And watching Peter Straub and John Skip arm in arm almost walking in to have lunch together and I thought wow that is so cool there's yeah. two people that are so different in terms of their writing and yet they hang out together so this field is for me yeah exactly um I also love uh the gothic bible can you uh can you tell us a little bit about how that came into existence and what it is exactly for people who haven't read it yeah, it's a nonfiction book that looks at the world of goth and the world. So it's not just uh, centric to North America. I tried to pull in people from all over the place to get a, an overview of what goth 
was about at the time that I wrote it, which was in the, again, this was in the late 90s. And uh, the book, um, uh, it was a book that uh, my agent at the time came to me and said that a publisher was interested in doing this book. And because I was in the goth world, wanted to know if I'd be interested because I'd be a good person to write it. So I was interested, but that particular publisher had a different slant on it than I was interested in doing. The -hmm. publisher, I talked to him and he told me he had a young child and he wanted wanted something more like a warning (laughs) against, you know, goth so that when his child grew a little bit older they wouldn't get sucked into the subculture that's not what i wanted to write i wanted to write something that showed what goth was really about and present it as a a, you know a realistic option it wasn't a bunch of blood drinking maniacs going around killing people and (laughs) sleeping in cemeteries so so that's how it came about um then the agent um took it to auction but by that time uh we'd hit 9-11 <laughs> it wasn't a very good time to sell a book because yeah. every new york had gone into stun mode uh yeah. but she did manage to sell it to st martin's and uh, so i wrote it for st martin's and had a good editor there who um who bought the book who had been goth and when he was younger and he really liked the idea that i wanted to do uh and so i i wrote the book and then he left <laughs> which happens in both <laughs> Uh, because he went to another department in the publishing house yeah. and a new editor came along and uh, she she was very young but she didn't know anything really about goth so she was I think a little bit intimidated by the whole thing and by me and by my my agent who was nonstop talker we met in New York one time for lunch the three of us and god anyway <laughs> so, uh, so it came about and um and i was really happy with the result of it i interviewed something like the hundred goths and uh, quite detailed interviews and this was all through the internet so that uh, people you know wrote back their answers i got photos of people it was really quite nice plus i interviewed a lot of shops that catered to goth and magazines uh, anybody that was participating in the goth world in some way uh, manic panic hair color you name it you know <laughs> It was anybody that could be in there. Um, And writers, of course. I interviewed several writers and musicians and bands and on and on and on. So it's a very big, comprehensive book. Obviously, if I had had more time and I'd had some research help, I could have done maybe a bigger book even or several books on this world. But I did what I could within the time frame and the little bit of money that came from it because it was 9-11 and it was very hard to sell a book period back then so um, yeah but anyway I was happy with the results of it and then at the last moment when it first came out uh, and got into my hands my new young editor called me up to say um, that she had some bad news <laughs> the bad mm-hmm. news was that because of 9-11 uh, and because of things like Columbine that had happened not too long before that yeah. Barnes and Noble in the States decided not to carry the book. Now, this is a death sentence to a book. Uh, yeah. You have to be in a major chain. And Amazon was there, but not what it is now. So it was a whole different world. Anyway, uh, to cut to the chase, this um, young editor that I had, she actually really took after this. And she, she did a big proposal, a big presentation for Barnes and Noble. Uh, she worked her, herself to death to get this book into the Barnes and Noble stores. So they did end up taking copies for two stores only, one in New York, one in Los Angeles. <laughs> and that was the end. But virtually, 
they relented it, and then it was everywhere. So and uh, and it was yeah. Yeah, so it was it was sort of a strange whole phenomenon that went around this book, but I think it's a, a good presentation of the goth world as I saw it then. I tried to base everything that I wrote on what people said in the very extensive interviews, so I was including what was part of, you know, coming into me, my own particular biases. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Um, I, I really enjoy reading, or have enjoyed reading that. Um, speaking of... Uh, uh, gothic and and vampires uh you've also written a lot of erotica and slash horror i guess you could say um one thing i'm always interested in is uh how do you think uh uh horror and erotica mix well i guess i don't really see erotica as anything special in a way i mean it's part of life to me so you know, if you have a horror story and you have somebody cooking or you have a horror story and somebody's at their job working, I don't think, I don't really see the sex as anything apart from a person's life or a character's life uh, or even a supernatural character's life. So to me, they, it fits in. Um, I know people call it erotic horror and I have called it erotic horror just for ease of understanding what something is about, that it does have sex in it. But I think that's part of the realm, especially with vampires. They've become overtly sexual in the last, well, I don't know, 40 years or something. So they, you know, and, and a lot of some of that has to do with films like the Hammer films that came out of the UK. Yeah. So the, you know, the eroticism's there, you know, from about the 60s onward uh, in that particular subgenre. And I just see it as part of it. It's just the way the world is. Yeah. Um, Revenge of the Vampire King is uh, your latest book. Uh, this is yeah. the, the beginning of a new series, is that correct? It is, yeah. There'll be six, possibly seven books. Wow, that's a, that's a, pretty, uh, that's, that's a pretty long tale. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was uh, wondering, what, what's the, what was the genesis behind Revenge of the Vampire King? Uh, this is a book that I wrote spontaneously in Florida, but I had been thinking about it for a number of years. I had it's been in my head to write this kind of book, and one year I was happened to be in Florida for a month. Uh, it was unusual. Usually it was a week, <laughs> but uh, this year in the winter, <laughs> that particular year, I was there a month. And while I was there, I had my computer with me, and I wanted to write something. I was happy to be away from Facebook and happy to be away from my home phone, and you know, just to have the time to write and do nothing but. Uh, so I just started writing this book, and it came out of me fluidly, and uh, it, it was about 100,000 words popped out of me over a month. So I had the first book. Of course, I've rewritten it many times since. And out of that book came the obvious idea for the second book, which will be out also this year. It's going to be called Sacrifice of the Hybrid Princess. Hmm. And, and uh, there's a third book and a fourth book. And that I've been writing these over this long period of time. So basically, I have had the first book completed. I just need to re, you know, re needed to rewrite it a bit and rework it. The second book, I had about 65,000 words done out of the 100,000. The third book, I had 60,000 words. The fourth book, I had 45,000. So these are all partly done, you know. And mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so... So it's an exciting series to me, and there each book can be read apart. So it's each one has a story that resolves within that time frame of that novel, but there is an overarching 
um, storyline as well. So if, if you read them all, you get the whole big picture and where it leads that particular big story. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's one scene, um, near, actually, before we get into that, can you tell us a little bit about what, uh, the vamp, uh, revenge of the vampire King is about? It's about revenge. <laughs> <laughs> there are two species in this book. One is the vampires, of course, and the other one is the human beings, which are called the sapiens in this book, as in Homo sapiens. And uh, they are at odds, have been at odds for so almost since the beginning of time. And they are enemies, and they are constantly warring. Vampires need blood, of course, to survive, and the sapiens don't like that. But they, mm -hmm. the sapiens are actually, the vampires are pretty fierce and ferocious and violent, but the, the human beings, they are much worse in my viewpoint. <laughs> they actually <laughs> go further with things. So, and, and that, to me, is like my view of some of the aspects of humanity that I find pretty disheartening and disgusting. What you see, you know, in the streets sometimes, and what certainly what you see on the news, oh, and yeah. you know, Especially. just terrible things that go on in the world. So I'm not painting human beings as the kind of, you know, the answer, the be all and the end all answer to things. The human beings are shown for what they can do that's awful too. So yeah, that was actually one theme I really enjoyed uh, reading this book because, uh, uh, well, I just enjoyed how taking the idea of a monster. And making them seem, despite their ferociousness, seem better than the human. <laughs> uh, you know, every once in a while you come across this kind of idea, and I think you you did it brilliantly in this book. Oh, thank you. Um, and, I, I, I think basically what I'm trying to say is that they're vampires, and they've lived over centuries, so many of them for a long, long time, and they have to have learned something over this time. And while they do hate the sapiens because of how they are, um, and I get into this somewhat in the book and, and in other books as well, that this is a, these were meant to be not enemies, but it didn't work out that way. The two species were not supposed to be enemies. The vampire would escort the sapiens who are mortal into their demise. And so it was kind of a, a leading in here give me your hand sort of like a dance macabre figure give me your hand I will help you get to the next level which is through the death channel uh, but it didn't work out that way <laughs> so um, so so what I'm trying to say is that you know surely the vampires have figured something out over centuries they're not as stupid as they used to be and while they're not in love with the sapiens at all you know as a species they do they have they have tried to refine themselves and they've had to band together and amalgamate because of the threats to their existence. Yeah. That, w one thing I, I really enjoyed was uh, how you kind of turn the table uh, because when we're introduced to, uh, well, all the characters at the beginning, uh, you get the impression that the vampires are evil and, and, the, and the humans are, are good. And there's a scene near the beginning where Morta, the vampire king, displays his dominance uh, to the sapiens princess above a crowd of vampires. Now, that was a pretty intense scene. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that's what vampires are about. I mean, they're control freaks for sure. Human beings are too. But, I mean, this is what the vampire is about. Anytime you read vampire liter literature, any any of the books, I have like 25 hundred in my, my library they're all vampire books I mean these books this, this is what the vampire is about control 
Um, so it's not just what they're about, but they certainly want control. They, they want control, they like control, and they see human beings as inferior generally. Now, some vampires, of course, can be, you know, melancholy, and some of them can be guilt-ridden and all of that. I'm not particularly writing those vampires, but, yeah. uh, you know, mostly they just, uh, they see the human beings as food. Bottom line, they're food. Yeah. The way we see food. <laughs> um. Now, this book takes place, uh, it, 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 you don't give a year or anything like that, but you get the impression it's around uh, medieval times, maybe a bit before that. So I was wondering, what, what's the research, what was the research like? Um, I imagine there was a lot of uh, uh, history and sword fighting combat to, uh, to look up. Well, I have done other stories and other, you know, other books where I've done research before, so I'm pretty clear on the on what kind of weaponry is what, but um, it's not defined because, well, partly it's not defined because when I initially wrote this book, I had many different genres fitting in there. I had science fiction, I had steampunk, there are a lot of things in there, and I had to remove other, I had to, to make it uh, a reasonable length, 100,000 words, I had to remove things, I couldn't, I was doing too much because I was just having fun, right, I was just writing this to have fun, uh, but to make it into something that people would want to read, I had to actually condense it and think more about what I was doing, so essentially I removed things, and in the removal process I decided that I wouldn't identify the era because I wasn't sure how I was going to present it in the future. Mm -hmm. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, what kind of weapons might be in the second book or the third book or what, you know, uh, anything industrial that might appear. I wanted to be part of a world that could encompass whatever. Now, it has a medieval feel probably because of the, the way um, the weaponry, as you said, but also maybe the way the sapiens are dressed. The sapiens have a very medieval kind of quality to them. Yeah. So it could be that. But I intentionally did not want to fix it in an era. Yeah, well, at first I thought it was a complete, a complete fantasy story, sort of like... Uh, uh, you know, like a Tolkien type thing, a dark fantasy of that type. But then there was a few references that were uh, almost Earth-like, like, uh, I think you mentioned BC as in uh, Before Christ, and uh, uh, something, you know, some things like that. And I was like, oh, this is this takes place, you know, in our, in our world, uh, except it's, it's in its own universe, because, of course, there's vampires. But, uh, <laughs> but, uh, uh, and then, of course, there was the sword fights and and the, uh, the the like you said, the clothes and the swords. So, so I just kind of put, you know, two and two together. I, I imagine that other readers though will come out of it thinking, uh, you know, something else. I think readers do, you know, unless you hammer it down for them and say, okay, this is taking place in 1963 and this is what it was like then. Then they, you know, otherwise their imagination. It, reading is an imaginative activity. You have to use your imagination. And I really always feel that it's good for the writer to let the reader have that space to imagine things and not be, you know, channeling them so severely that they, you know, I just, I, personally, I like that as a reader to be able to envision something. And then um, sometimes I've heard authors talk about their work. And it's not what they've envisioned, but that's okay. <laughs> you know, when I read it, it's my book to read. Yeah. My world, my imagination. Exactly. So I like that, to give that to readers as well. I yeah. wrote a lot of things, um, certainly in short fiction. I write. I've written a lot of things that are not defined time-wise at all. I really like that 
that sense of, you know, you read into it what you will. Exactly. And, you know, art, most art is up for interpretation, and the best art makes the reader or the person observing it participate somehow, and that's a great way of doing it right there. Yeah, I think it, it works for art, for sure. Yeah. So w- one thing I was wondering about, uh, especially when you're writing a series uh, such as this, you you say it's going to be six or seven books. Do you have an outline for the rest of the series? Like, you know where it's going to start, where it's going to end, and the story arcs in between? Or do you just kind of uh, just have an idea in your head and keep going with it? I have the overview definitely solidified in my head. I know what I'm doing with the two aspects of the overview. I know where it's going and why it's going there and how it's going there. So that's kind of uh, already defined. And that's, uh, you know, there are notes that I've written at the top of each book. This is this is this, this is that. So it's kind of like having a little bit of an outline that I always have at the top of a book, just notes for myself so that when I'm writing it, it's just, uh, I'm clear on what's happening in terms of that overview. And of course, there's the story that happens within each novel. So that's the, that has to allow for that overview, but also be a story unto itself so that, um, you know, it's, it's leading to something, but it's also within that context, it finishes kind of. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. Well, um, before we go, um, can you tell us where readers and listeners can find you online? Oh, yeah. I'm everywhere. <laughs> uh, I'm on Facebook. You can find me there. I'm on Twitter as uh, Nancy K. Writer, and uh, I have a blog now, which I've just started whenever I have anything to say, which is not every day, but every once in a while I have something to say, so that's on the blog. I have a new website. Um, yeah, so everything is there. I can be found quite easily even in the phone book. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. Well, thanks for being on, and thanks for talking with me, Nancy. Oh, thank you, Jason. I appreciate it. And that concludes our Sex and Slaughter episode. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, be sure to check out the novels of Nancy Kilpatrick, Lucy Taylor, Megan Hart, and Sephra Jerome. We want to thank all our guests for taking the time to chat scary, sexy stories with us. You can find the Great Lakes Horror Company on Facebook. Just search for us by name and on Twitter at GL Horror Podcast. If you have a question, comment, or idea for a future show, please email us at glhc at horror-writers.ca. Join us next time. We have such sights to show you.